for some reason, I said to my mum, Graham is not my dad, is he? And even I was surprised as the words came out of my mouth. And my mum says, no. And I physically felt like I had fallen through the floor. back to the lip. Now for a while, when I was a kid, I suspected that my parents had adopted me and that I had a much more glamorous identity than they were letting on about. I once even stemmed open a few of their letters, hoping to catch them out in their terrible lie. There was never anything more interesting though than an electricity bill. What I would have done if I discovered that I was right and that everything I knew about myself wasn't true? I honestly don't know how I would have handled it. And yet that's kind of what happened to Andy Richardson, whose voice you heard at the top of this track. This is the story of Angie and her mum Averill. It's a tale about love and, well, one rather big lie. And how, ultimately, there's nothing more satisfying than the truth. In 1982, Angie was a typical teen in lots of ways, except that she and her younger sister Julie had more freedom than most of their friends. Their mum Averill had grown up in a very strict household where there was a lot of love but also a lot of rules, and Averill had taken a very different approach to parenting. She swung the pendulum completely the other way. <laughs> We pretty well had free reign. <laughs> I'm um, out and about, staying out late, yeah, parties, drinking, doing what you needed to do. The wound curfew used to speak of. What she had said to us was that she trusted us so we could, you know, do really what we felt we needed to do. Angie's dad, Graham, had been out of the picture since she was seven. And as a result, Angie, her sister and their mum were like the three musketeers as tight as tight could be. We were extraordinarily close. There was often a feeling of us against the world um, as we struggled together. So mum really did the hard yards in keeping us together and trying to provide for us and give us the best of this and that. So in January 1982, life was chugging along for Angie. It was summer, she was 16 years old, and there were still weeks and weeks of the school holidays ahead of her. One thing she was particularly excited about was going to the Sweetwaters Music Festival at the end of the month. Sweetwaters was about as close as New Zealand got to its own version of Glastonbury or Woodstock. Three days of hanging out with her friends, having fun, and catching acts like Meatloaf, Ultravox, and Cold Chisel. So I had made plans with my friends, yes, it was our first time of going, and as my mum had never said no to anything, I assumed I'd be able to go. So I said, right, mum, Sweetwaters is coming up, and I would like to be going with my friends and mates. And for the first time, I had a no 
from her. This just doesn't make sense to me. So we kind of argued around it a little bit. What's preceded this is um, I'm in the sixth form and some questions had come up with my friends around, oh, when did our parents get married? What age were they when they got married? And oh, how long before they got married and then they had us? And I suddenly found this information actually a little bit hard to get out of mum. She was very vague about it. So suddenly I'm adding some months and I said, oh, so you were actually pregnant when you got married. You were pregnant with me when you got married. Uh, and another sort of odd thing appeared in biology class. I've got different eye colours from my mum and I've got different eye colour from my sister. I've got green, mum's brown and Julie's blue. It just seemed a really odd thing that it was all different. Didn't go any further, hadn't made any more of it than that. So just a couple of little things that had sort of popped up. So when the Sweetwaters situation came along and my mum's suddenly putting on um, the brakes about what I'm able to do when she's never done that before, I don't know, but for some reason I said to my mum, Graham is not my dad, is he? And even I was surprised as the words came out of my mouth. I can still remember it. I can still remember standing in front of her and these words have come out of my mouth and I have not consciously had that thought. And my mum says, no. And I physically felt like I had fallen through the floor. It came out of the blue. And I can still remember standing in the kitchen, I think, when she asked me. And... I was surprised how relieved I was that I could finally be honest. That's Angie's mum, Averill. Now, here's Angie again. I don't even remember questioning anymore about who it was. I just remember sort of taking off up through the stairs. And a little bit later, we talked about what that actually meant. No, Graham wasn't my dad. Who was my dad? What had happened? And mum explained that they had been at a dance and they had fallen in love and they had had a summer romance and to her horror she had discovered that she was pregnant. We're going to leave 16-year-old Angie now and take a leap back in time to when her mum Averill was 18 in the 1960s. As I mentioned earlier, she'd been raised in a very conservative family. Her older siblings had conformed perfectly well to their parents' strict rules and expectations, but Averill had been cut from a different cloth. They were absolutely wonderful parents of young children. They were a very loving couple with each other, and, and family life was fun. They weren't so hot for me when I had adolescence because they had very conservative views, and I was ready for something quite different. I just loved Elvis from the time he appeared. But then I remember being in the bath, shaving my legs when I first heard a Beatles song on the radio. And that was it. I became a Beatles girl. <laughs> I covered my walls in pictures of film stars and singers and God knows what. And at one stage my father got so incensed with what he thought I was out of control, so I was I had to take them all down and burn them. I didn't 
feel at all understood. No, no. No, no. And, and because my older siblings conformed a lot more and did all the right things, and I, I didn't fit in in that way. I just didn't fit in. We didn't talk about sex. There was a huge shame about it. It was a world where there was two rules going down. It was okay for boys to say their seeds or whatever they were doing. That was okay. But young women were supposed to be the epitome of Virgin Mary. We still had glory boxes. We started collecting things for when you got married. Linens and things like this. I mean, it's such a different world. I think I could sum it up by saying you were either a good girl or a bad girl. Good girls weren't allowed to be bad and bad girls never had a chance of being good and it was all about sexuality. It was as narrow-minded as that. My own family say I was born to be a rebel but I don't think it was like that as a young child. I was very conforming and very sweet and nice but at adolescence it all changed. Avril was adventurous and excited about life's possibilities. She was coming of age just as the 60s were in full swing. And then suddenly we were, had all this music coming along that was discussing love in a different way. And I loved rock and roll. She dreamed of being a famous novelist. What kind of books were you going to write? Oh, steamy. <laughs> I already had a steady diet of books that wouldn't have been allowed by my parents. And not only did I read steamy stuff, I read a lot of romantic novels. I had romantic visions. I was feeding them. Avril struggled at school with anything that required coordination. Something she would much later learn was because of a condition called dyspraxia. I was embarrassed that I was so hopeless at gymnastics and athletics. So I worked really hard at things like netball, but mostly I worked hard at flirting, because actually I discovered I was quite good at that. By the age of 14, she was going out to dances. Bands would be put on in church halls and youngsters would go to these dances. And so I was made sure that I <clears throat> rocked up and looking as good as possible and having fun. It was around that time that Avril went on her first official date with a boy called Graham Taylor. I met him at school dancing class. There he stood in his winkle pickers. Yes, he had winkle pickers and he had one of those little tiny narrow ties and his Elvis Presley haircut. And he was the lead singer and guitar player of the school band. He looked the part. They said, boys ask a girl for a dance. He led the herd across and he went straight to me and said, would you care to dance? And we were partners from then. All of the dancing classes we partnered up. It was clearly an attraction, mutual attraction, but it was a, a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship on a very primitive scale, if you see what I mean. But he didn't have a car. We went in the bus, so it wasn't very exciting from that point of view but it was was official and it was sanctioned by my parents and he turned up and he did all the right things so we would have seen a movie together and then he would have escorted me home there was no serious romance between avril and graham but they stayed friends and went on the odd date when she was 17 
Avril left school and got an office job. Around a year later, she went to a dance and met the man who was going to change her life forever. Just not in the Mills and Boone way she envisaged. His name was Michael. It was one of those moments. There was nothing much to say. We just looked at each other across the dance floor and saw each other and we danced all night. I thought he looked absolutely fantastic. I mean, he was 10 years older, very tanned, blonde hair tall, slim, and of course the English accent. And when I realised he'd been in the army, of course, to me, you know, a young woman, I thought, oh, that was romantic. And served in Malaya. He had a bit of sophistication, I thought, appeared deep and uh, interesting. And I would hang on every word. It very quickly turned into quite a passionate relationship. I was very, very smitten. All my romantic notions that I had hidden about the fabulous stranger coming into my life, here he was. So it was like he played a part in a story that I had in my head. He, he was it. I assumed that because we said we loved each other, I mean, I was very, very naive. I saw everything through this romantic spectacles that I was wearing. He was supposed to be the man of my dreams and he was supposed to fulfil certain things. And he did enough to indicate that he cared about me. I thought he did. He had the manners. He treated me well. And we laughed. I mean, the usual things that couples do together that didn't indicate you're falling in love. But I had built it into something that it wasn't. It was at the beginning of 1965, when she was 18 years old, that Avril discovered she was pregnant. I went away for the summer break with my family, and I began to feel not well. So that was the first indication. I came back early because I had to get back to work, and went to the doctors. The doctor I didn't know, of course, obviously. Had to test, and yes, the result was I was. Um, I was by this time really feeling quite nauseous in the mornings. And Mike knew I was back home, so we were due for a date anyway. I told him, but what happened was absolute, not what you would have ever expected from someone who loved you. No. <laughs> it was, it, he went completely cold. It was like the sun being turned off. So I knew then, it was like, oh my gosh, I expected him to be perhaps a bit upset or whatever, but I expected it to be a twosome thing, that we will get through this together or whatever we do. We'll... But he started laying the boundaries down right away. We hadn't known each other long enough. We can't possibly have a baby. Um, and he says he didn't, but he did offer to pay for an abortion. That's how I remember it. I was shocked, absolutely shocked. I was so devastated, I was numb. It was the biggest horror story. And many young women of my generation were facing, I wasn't the only one, there was a flood of them around that time, I know that. And I know plenty of other people's stories would have been just as horrific as mine. But certainly that rejection at that point was a total numbness. And it was an era when woman took the blame. So, yes, marriage was success. Pregnancy without marriage was definitely a failure.
I realised I was in deep trouble. I didn't break down and cry or anything like that. I just went and withdrew within myself. It was quite quiet. I said, I'll think it over. What my options were, because my parents still hadn't come back from the holidays, so I had a bit of freedom about it. I was horrified that love had turned into this. This is this? This is what you call love? Avril knew her options were limited. At that time, women in her predicament typically had three choices. A shotgun wedding, a dangerous and illegal backstreet abortion, or leave town and go through the pregnancy in secret before putting the baby up for adoption. With Mike refusing to marry her, it seemed to Avril that adopting the baby out was her best choice. I was informed enough to know that it would all be hidden. This would not be something that would be talked about in the open. You would go somewhere where no one knew, knew you. You would be shunned. You would, for a while, you'd become an outcast. But then, still before her parents had returned from their summer holiday, something totally unexpected happened. That very next day, Graham arrived unexpectedly at my work. I've just bought a new car, Avril. Would you like to take a spin? Oh, can we do that after work? Yes, love to. Come on, I'll pick you up. There was my knight in shining armour. Just like that. If you talk about coincidence, you talk about life's whatever destiny you talk about, whatever you want to talk about, he arrived the very next day. Hadn't seen him for ages. So I liked his new car, of course, told him my story, burst into tears, saying, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? It's all right, it's all right, I'll marry you, I love you, I'll marry you. Oh, so we went and had dinner, took me to dinner, dried my tears and said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. Just like that. Because if you've been rejected and someone else wants you, I mean, it's just like a huge relief. Looks like, oh, actually, somebody thinks I'm okay. Somebody cares enough to do the honourable thing. There was this meeting with Mike where I thought, you have a last chance to fight for me, man. This is your child and this is the woman who says she loves you and you don't, you're not interested. I've got someone here who's offered to marry me. What do you think about that? Oh, he says, well, that's what you want to do. So when my parents arrived home, they arrived home to Graham and I saying, we've come to ask your permission, or he came and said, I've come to ask your permission, can I, can I marry your daughter? We're in, we want to be engaged. When they heard the whole story, my father, of course, exploded. He was a man of the times and started calling me all the names under the sun. Whore, you whore. Slut, Jezebel. Tart was another word used. And my mother just cut, cut it right there. There's a baby involved here. We need to sort this. We need time to think about this, Graham. Thank you so, so much. What did your mother think? And if we're going to go ahead with this, we'll invite your mother over to talk about it. That's exactly what happened. They turned it over and they came to the agreement that, yes, if she, as long as she was happy, because she would have also had to give her permission, because we were both underage, that they would give theirs. 
While Avril was still in love with Mike... I stayed in love with him for a long time. It was terrible. She also loved Graham. Love has all different colours, doesn't it? And we'd been good mates. We'd been good dancing mates. And then through the time he'd given me a Jean Pitney LP with a heart on it and a locket with a thing that said, I love you. And we'd been on, on dates and things at various times. I felt like I knew him. I felt like I had known him all these years on and off. And so to some extent he was partly a known quantity. Now I didn't really know him, but I, I did know him at some level. Everything was done sh- real quick, you can imagine. We had a, a very brief engagement and a very quick marriage. And the one thing I didn't have was a veil over my face, which apparently indicates virginity. And I had a white frock with a pink, white lace over pink, yes, so it wasn't entirely white. I was so, I was so, so grateful and thrilled I could keep my baby. I imagined I was going to be this fantastic mother and this fantastic wife and I'd prove to the world that Graham had made the right choice and that it would all be beautiful and lovely and my romantic haze was put right back on and that's what I went with. Her baby girl Angela was born seven months later on September the 24th, 1965 into a huge secret. That was the decision made by the two sets of parents, Graham's parents and my parents, that this was to be a family secret, that the paternity was to be a secret, and Graham, to all intents and purposes, was the father. He would be the father on the birth certificate, and he was to be treated as the father. That was the condition that his mother put forward to give permission for the marriage. That was the condition. I agreed because that was a fair thing to ask. So it was the secret. So very few people knew. My best friend, I never told her. Even before her baby was born, however, Avril's rose-tinted glasses had begun to fade. Graham was living a double life. He was still Graham. He still played his guitar and he still was in his band and he was still living the life. So he had two lives. One life being uh, as husband and father and another life outside the home, which I wasn't part of. Very early in our marriage, when I was still pregnant, my younger sister saw him at the Easter show with another woman, so there was already indications that he was living another life. But I accepted his explanation because I did not want to make any waves. There was another occasion when I couldn't avoid the fact that he really was having an affair with someone, because I actually came across it. I rang up my father and said, actually, Dad, I've made a mistake. Can I come home? No, you've made your choice. It's up to you to make that marriage work. I realised that I had to make the best of whatever I had. Two years after Angie was born, Avril gave birth to another daughter, Julie. But five years later, the marriage ended. And I think that came out of me getting stronger and me not caring as much. So I went to night school, got myself a driving licence, got myself a job, and I think he was under so much pressure. He was living such a double life, and I was just getting more and more in charge of me. And although we were never destined to be long-term together, I am eternally grateful that he did that for me. In fact, I told him so. 
I turned up with the girls and we went to visit him and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I've come to thank you. Thank me? Yes, I said, for my girls. Thank you. I got the best end of the bargain. We had a hug after all those years and I did. Felt very grateful. After the divorce, Avril went to Teachers College and remarried. Graham moved to Australia and the girls never saw him again. He's since died. And all the while, lurking under the surface was the secret that Avril had kept for 16 years. Until the moment when Angie blurted out the question she didn't even know she wanted to ask. Graham's not my father, is he? I was taken aback, but I was very relieved that we had an opportunity to say it. Because it had been there, and I didn't feel like I had to protect anyone anymore. I didn't have to protect Graham, I didn't have to protect my parents, I didn't have to protect anyone. The most important person in this was Angie, and so I could say it. I said, no, uh, Graham wasn't your biological father, another man was. I think I must have almost gone out of my body with it. The world's spinning around what's real, what's true and what's not. Yeah, my world really felt like it. It fell apart and everything that I knew had fallen away. Oh my God, my sister's not my full sister. She's, she's my half-sister. There's some stranger out there who hasn't wanted to know about me and he's my father. A and what does that all mean? I closed down a lot and I became quite angry and quite angry at the world. I was certainly starting to take far more risky behaviours when I was out and about with friends. So I was drinking. I didn't want people touching me. I didn't want to be close in Hemden places. I remember being on buses and just I couldn't bear people being near me. I certainly had a sense of feeling a betrayal in not being told, and I couldn't understand why I wouldn't have been told. But I, I certainly don't feel that there was direct anger to my mum. I had a, an, an overwhelming sense of compassion for what she would have been through. And I think also for me, the realisation, I could have been adopted out. So I guess in that way I felt actually pretty blessed. I left it for a couple of years before I became very curious as to who Mike might be. There was a real curiosity about who he was and I did start asking mum a few more questions about well who had Mike been and who you know why did you fall in love with this guy. There was some curiosity starting to build about oh, I wonder what he looks like and yeah I wonder how we'd get on and, and in what way am I like him. So at that point I thought I would just look up and see if I could find him. and mum had known that when he had been seeing her he had been building a house out in West Auckland and so I looked up the white pages just out of curiosity and there sure enough is M in the phone book with an address. So all I did at that particular time was to write the details in, put his address in and put his phone number in, put on a little bit of scrap of paper, folded it up and put it into my jewellery box and didn't do anything further with it at that point. Two years later though, things had changed. Now I'm 20 
20 years old and here I am kind of playing out my mum's story in a sense. I've fallen pregnant myself at a young age and fortunately for me the father has stayed on the scene. So I've got my own baby and I'm living with my partner and my mum and my stepdad are helping us out a little bit and they let me know that they've bought a house in West Auckland and I said oh where was that where have you you know where have you got and my mum names the street and I said oh oh that's gosh something is ringing a bell in the back of my mind I said right uh what number and she gives me the number and for some reason it rings a very large bell and I go over to my jewelry box and I lift the lid and I unfold the tiny little piece of paper that has been sitting there for a couple of years now and that's the address that my mother and my stepfather have just bought. They have bought the house that my biological father was building when he met my mum. That is mad. My mother is absolutely horrified. So what actually happened was my partner and I ended up by moving into the house. So here I am living with my baby and my partner in the house that my father built who I've never met. Even more intriguingly, Avril had a hunch that Mike had built a second house on that street and she wondered out loud if he might still be living there. So I look up his name again in the phone book and sure enough his address is at the other end of the street. He's still in the same street. So I'm jogging past a house where my father could be living. Really weird. So jogging past, jogging past, wondering, checking, I wonder if he's there, I wonder if I might see him, am I passing him in the street? And one day in my jogging gear I think, stuff it. I'm just going to go and knock on the door without any planning, any warning. And so up I go, up the driveway, knock on the door, the door's open. I think, my God, is that my father standing there? I said, is Mike here? And the man said, oh no, we've, um, we've bought the house off him. They've shifted, but yep, Mike had built the house and had not, from not too long ago, been living there. So I get his details from him and I get a work phone number. And at that point, I phone Mike. And I say, hello Mike, um, I'm Angela Taylor and I use my, uh, my birth name that he may have known about and I said I am living in one of the houses that you've built um, in West Auckland and I've just got a couple of issues with the house, I'm wondering if you'll come and see me. So I wasn't completely honest on the phone but I had given a name that he might recognise. There was a little bit of hesitation, but he said, yeah, sure. Yep, so we made a time for him to come and meet. So on the appointed day, there's a knock at the door, and I open it, and there's Mike standing there, and there's just a moment of silence. And he looks at me, and he knows. To be honest, my first reaction had been of disappointment. <laughs> I'd imagined a young guy, of course. I've been painted a picture of a young man, and here's a middle-aged man. I certainly didn't look at him and see myself. He, his hair had gone brown and I'm blonde, so it wasn't, what I was ex <laughs> wasn't physically what I was expecting. It was quite a bit to take in. 
He did say driving there he thought it was really odd as he's looking at my name. He thought, that's impossible, it's just a coincidence. So the story emerges that he had tracked my mother and myself for some time after um, I'd been born and mum had been married. He had the grace to cry um, a little bit about it. Uh, his story was that he felt unable to support a family. There was just a lot of looking, really, at each other. <laughs> he he had his own family. He had split up from his wife, but he had a son and a daughter. It was just a very strange meeting. For him, he must have been wondering, how in the hell have you ended up in this house, for a start? And certainly I'm wondering how I'm sitting there with this man who... I, I didn't feel a connection with, but this absolute interest as well. It's, I'm, I'm repelled, I'm attracted, I want to know more, I'm wondering why I'm not feeling more towards him, I don't know that I look like that. There's lots of things going round and round. And what do you say to someone? Here's a whole lifetime. What do you say? What we agreed to at that time was we would be in touch. We swapped phone numbers and agreed to meet up. I can't remember exactly how long before I went to visit him, but I went to his house to see him. They were very stiff meetings. They were awkward meetings. Uh, it was made very clear to me that um, if his daughter was around, I wasn't to be phoning um, and I wasn't to be in contact and no one was going to know about it. He was really clear and I put up with those rules that I was to essentially remain a secret, which is kind of, you know, I'd been a secret originally when Mama got pregnant and now I'm playing out a role of being secret again in his life. Angie's family all knew that she and Mike were in contact. But as the years rolled on, during which Angie had two more children, she continued to be kept a secret from Mike's family. She was confused and frustrated that their relationship never deepened. He certainly went along absolutely that, yeah, he was my dad, that that had all happened, and that I was his daughter, but there was never an ownership, there was never a deepening in our relationship. He was very critical of me. Why wasn't I able to keep my husband happier? Why hadn't I sorted myself out a job? Just little digs all the time, and on the other hand, also then not showing much of an interest in it. And yet I would be wanting something from him, some unnameable something. And he would suddenly just drop contact. I would be thinking, what have I done? What have I said? But no, there'd be no contact, and if I'd phone, he didn't want to know about it. So there'd be then a long period of silence. It's really hard to pinpoint what I was looking for. I guess I was looking for him to show some interest in me. I was looking for some sort of connection. I felt like I was the one caring about him. I would be asking questions about him. Um, I would be asking about his family. I'd have liked him to ask about my family. So we had really odd situations where he wouldn't ask about my daughter. And then later on where he wouldn't ask about my other children. I had him one time in my house and I had photos all up of my family, of my children, and he averted his head 
so that he didn't have to look at them. I'd say, oh, Mike, you, you could have a look at them. Look, and they'd really be fascinated to meet you. And he absolutely wouldn't have a bar of it. He wouldn't have a bar and he wouldn't look at the photos. It was hugely disappointing. And I kind of look back and think, why did I want more? It wasn't until Angie was in her mid-40s that she decided she was done with being a secret. The final straw came when her kids were flying the coop and her son Tyler wanted to go to acting school in the UK. Mike was English, which meant that if he was on Angie's birth certificate, her kids would be entitled to ancestry visas. So I approached Mike and I said, you've admitted I'm your daughter, I would really appreciate you just being on my birth certificate. I don't want anything out of it other than that so that my children have the right to apply for ancestry visa ship. And initially he agreed that he would sign the papers for that. But from my end it went cold and I didn't hear from him, he wouldn't sign the papers. And suddenly now I'm full of a bit of self-righteousness. Actually I've asked one thing from you that you could do. And it's very easy, you just sign the papers and you acknowledge that this is the story. All she got was silence. Instead of backing down, Angie found a lawyer and took Mike to court to have him formally acknowledged as her birth father. Avril signed an affidavit in which she told the story of what had happened all those years ago. And finally, the day came when they were all due in court. And, of course, Mike doesn't turn up. He doesn't man up, basically. He doesn't do the decent thing. And he doesn't arrive in court. I knew he wouldn't, but it was still really, really disappointing that he just couldn't do that one thing and just say, yeah, yeah, here I am. I'm your dad, yep. Avril was by her daughter's side as they waited for Mike to arrive. And as the court waited and waited, the judge said, I think we need to give Mr a few more minutes just in case he's late coming. Could you call him again? And we heard the caller going outside the court. Mr Mr came back. No, he's not here. I think we have to assume he's not coming. The judge was wonderful. She listened to the story and she said, right, he's not here. I can hear the facts. He's going on the birth certificate. Yeah, he's, he's the dad. And just like that, the truth about who Angie was, the truth of who her birth father was, had been recognised. Most of us have heard the saying, be careful what you wish for, and it was true in this case. When Angie's revised birth certificate arrived in the post, she felt something she hadn't expected. Regret. Not for having Mike recognised as her father, but for causing Graham Taylor, the man who'd welcomed her into the world as a baby, to be officially unrecognised. It was really hard to get Graham taken off, and that was a surprise. I realised he had been the father in all of this. He had been my dad. So while I haven't seen him, and he hasn't been a dad in my life as, you know, since I was seven, he was my dad. He'd given me a lot of love and set me up in those really early years. He stepped right up. Mum was able to keep me, that's the bottom line. And I really didn't want his name taken off, so it was, it was quite a big thing. It went hand in hand with feeling let down by the very man she had fought so hard 
to be recognised as her father. I've had some real feelings of anger towards him, that he hasn't had the guts or the integrity to be able to say, Avril, I'm sorry for how I treated you. And well done, Angie, yeah, for, for getting out there and doing well with your life. I haven't been part of it, but yeah, I can see that you've done really well. It's almost like carrying an embarrassment. This guy's related to me, and that's how he's treated us. There's been some shame for me, actually, around him. And forever, I guess a yearning. Just, just say, yeah, I'm your dad. But as much as it can hurt, knowing the truth and having the truth acknowledged is more satisfying than going through life as someone's secret. I think everybody has the right to know who they are. Everybody has the right to know where they come from. We all deserve to be able to give our name, to give our family, to say our place of standing. It's really important to be able to have a solid grounding in that for us to learn about ourselves. It's a human right. Avril says that she too felt set free when she no longer had to lie about Angie's beginnings. It kept me in a cage. There was two things operating here. There was Angie who didn't have the full story. That, that hurt her when it came out. And I was being kept a prisoner within myself. It set me free when I was able to be honest about it. It was, it was huge. It was like, oh, I don't have to pretend anymore. Oh, let's just say it like it is. Angie and Avril both say that their relationship changed after the truth came out, but not in any profound or unfixable way. Avril suspects it was due to change anyway, given that Angie was 16 and on the cusp of adulthood. When, four years later, Angie became a mother herself, they were once again as close as they'd ever been. Angie making contact with Mike brought up a cocktail of uncomfortable emotions for Avril, but she understood it was something Angie needed to do, no matter how problematic it eventually became. It was very healing for us that she had the guts to take it to court. It was such an unusual thing that she did. A paternity suit at her age. And then I think when I backed her and put in an affidavit, it altered our relationship slightly. I mean, we'd always been close, but I think it was like I was backing her, not Mike. When the chips were down, she didn't have to re-question that again. I was there. And when we were in court, and the judge was so compassionate, and she said, I can see that this has been very healing. And I thought, yeah, it has for both of us. Like it was, to have it acknowledged from the bench. It was, it was the most beautiful moment. I thought, yeah, thank you. It's taken all this time, but, but it, I would have never done it with Angie. It's the guts of Angie to do it. She's a gutsy girl, that Angie. I'm very, very proud of her. I've got an extraordinary relationship with my mum. 
and a huge compassion for her. What she would have gone through at that time would have been awful to be 18 and to suddenly be left alone with that and think, oh, who do you tell and what happens? But also a sense I was really wanted. The blessing in my life was I was really welcomed into the world and I was really loved. And you can't ask for more than that. You've been listening to The Lip, a podcast of extraordinary true stories. I'm Megan McChesney, and I'd like to thank Avril and Angie for sharing their story. Both Angie and Avril went on to become therapists. Avril is now in her early 70s and is a retired couples counsellor and sex therapist. Angie runs her own practice in Auckland as an expressive arts therapist and a drama therapist. Angie and her sister Julie are still as tight as tight can be with their mum. It's an unbreakable bond and Avril told me that despite her nightmare at being unmarried and pregnant in 1965, she wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't have ever not wanted her. I can't imagine life without having had her. So I can't ever look at any other possibility. And while Angie never did find that unnameable something she was wanting from Mike, she did learn about a family tray or two that made a lot of sense. What was fascinating was to discover that some things about the way his parents had been, take anger for example, he said we'd go silent. He recalled his parents not speaking for days on end and he kind of admitted that he probably did the same thing a little bit. And I was like, oh my God! Oh my God, I'm the only one in my family who can do days of silence. To me it felt like, yeah, there's some genetic something going on there. You can find photographs of Angie and Avril on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. And if you're new to The Lip, you can check out all our other episodes at that website, again, thelippodcast.kiwi. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who's been shouting out and letting the world know about the lip. It's making a world of difference, and I honestly can't tell you enough just how much I appreciate it. So thank you, from the bottom of my heart. That's it from me. I'll be taking a slightly longer break than normal between now and the next episode, as I'm going on the road for more stories. But please be assured, I'll be back sooner rather than later.